0: maybe seated we have a there we go we have a guest speaker that's going to just give us an uh, update information uh, things that we need to know years ago uh, there was a gentleman in the area still uh, still with us still alive still around his name was Clancy I can't remember Clancy's Trent. Clancy Trent wonderful man he would come often to the church visit us uh, was a faithful Gideon and a faithful believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and one that I was very glad to uh, know, and I don't know him much anymore, but, but because I don't know if he's really actively engaged or if he is, uh, I haven't really seen him. But he was the one that introduced me years ago to the Gideons, and I, it was more than just, well, I see him in the, ho- in the hotel or in the hospital. Uh, he was the one also that introduced me to the idea that it's Christian businessmen and their wives getting involved in the idea of sharing the gospel by making sure the word of God goes out. And so Mark, and I've told him I pray I don't butcher his name, Rosgowski, yes, I got it, uh, is here tonight. Uh, he stopped by the church probably a month ago, just before Christmas and said, I'd like to present the Gideons, if I may. Uh, it's not something, as a church body, we support missionaries on the mission field, but I certainly think it's a wonderful thing if you want to support it or if you want more information for you to get to know. So, Mark, why don't you come and introduce us to the whole of the Gideon program and what your part is in it.
1: God bless you, brother. Thank you. Blesses me every day. My name is Mark Roskowski. There are a lot of letters in my last name, so you might just remember me as Mark Alphabet. I want to thank Pastor Fannin and all of you for allowing me to be here to talk about the Gideon sign. I've been to Gideon Scott County for over 20 years now. Amen. There are 21 men and 10 women presently who help to place Bibles in hotels, doctor's offices, in the hospital. We gave out 520 testaments at the Georgetown College this fall. Amen. We visit the men and women and give Bibles to the residents of the Scott County Jail. And we had 22 people baptized at the jail this fall. We give testaments to the children at the vacation Bible schools, and we place Bibles for the unsheltered and in drug rehab facilities here in Georgetown. Through speaking in churches like this and our Gideon Card program, the 31 active members here in Georgetown helped raise almost $30,000 last year to buy Bibles and Testaments. But in my opinion, these are not the greatest things that we do. Just a couple of years ago, the Gideons International placed over 76 million Bibles and Testaments in 199 different countries and over 100 different languages in just one year. And what does 76 million Bibles and Testaments look like? They would fill 810 semi-trailers all the way to the roof. Now, one of our Gideons in Scott County, who's a retired pastor, did some more math. If we believe Isaiah fifty-five eleven, which says, So shall my word be which shall go forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall do whatever, whatsoever I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Then if just 1% of the Bibles the Gideons distributed over the last year prospered, 760,000 souls were led to Jesus. I've heard firsthand and seen pictures from other Gideons who have gone on Bible blitzes to other countries about what has occurred by the end of one week. A dozen men handing out over 320,000 Testaments from the back of pickup trucks and SUVs in a week has an amazing effect. Students in places like Guyana take the Testaments home, and many of them read most of the Testament overnight. By the end of the week, there have been thousands of people who give their lives to Christ in a public proclamation. I didn't come here today to boast about what God's ministry has accomplished. I came here to ask for prayer, that you would support the efforts to spread the gospel to people who've never had a chance to hear it. Pray that the Gideons are able to supply all of the requests for Bibles instead of just two out of three. I came to ask for support that you may give a Gideon card instead of flowers when someone passes. Flowers last only a few days, but the gift of God's word is a gift that will keep on giving. A gift of God's word is a gift of a changed life, where a single Bible can bring eternal blessings that will never be forgotten. Using Gideon cards means you make a donation to the Gideons, as each $5 incremental donation purchases a full Bible. Cards are sent to the person in memory of in recognition of, congratulations for an accomplishment, or in prayer for the person you designate. As a Gideon, I've heard testimonies firsthand from thieves, drug dealers, and murderers whose lives were changed in just a moment when they asked Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. I've watched men and women cry as they talk about how the Bible not only changed them, but also their families who came to the Lord because of this change. I would like to place a seed of evangelism in your heart tonight. The gift of salvation that you have been given needs to be shared. Right. Matthew 5, 15 and 16 says, you, are not, you would not light a candle and put it under a basket. Let your lights shine before men so that may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If you're a business or professional man and you become, if you care to become part of this work by joining the Gideon ministry in Scott County... If you feel led, you may say that you want to pray about that, but I would ask, what do you think God would say about spending a few hours a month planting seeds of salvation? Pastor Fannin's allowed me to place a card rack in the foyer of your church. You can look through the cards, which are easy to use, or you may decide to become a friend of the Gideons, which asks you to support God's work with a regular donation. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'll be at the back after the service if you have any questions. Thank you again.
0: I appreciate anyone that wants to share the gospel. and An organization that is designed to do so is certainly a blessing. Uh, I would echo what Mark said. We, we do our visitation here within the church. There's no reason why we have to just be limited to that. I've also always said that in giving back to the Lord, your primary should always be first the church, but if God has blessed you, it doesn't only have to be the church. Uh, My father-in-law was telling me before church, actually this morning, he said, is it Keith that's coming? Did you ever figure out his last name? Keith Bus Driver. Uh, it was a bus driver with him, was also a faithful Gideon. So the, the answer is, I appreciate you being here. I'm glad for it. I hope you get to know him tonight. Take your Bibles tonight. Turn with me to Psalm 120. We're going through the Sundays and the Psalms e- each Sunday night this year. Other men will begin to preach and to teach. Last week, we went over an overview of the Psalms. And I told you that starting this Sunday night, all the way through Easter, we're going to go through the Psalms. Of degrees. Now, what I didn't realize is that we would start on such a cold Sunday night. So, we do need to increase the degrees as we get towards the end of these in Psalm one thirty-four. But uh, we'll look at these song, this first song of degrees, as it comes to us here in Psalm one hundred and twenty. So, you know that next week it'll be one twenty-one, and there'll be a couple weeks where I combine the psalms. I might put two together. Uh, One of the Psalms that we're going to go through is only three verses, and I know I can talk a lot about a little, but I'm not 100% sure I can do an entire service on three verses. I've done it on one word before, but I think it'll be best if on some of them we tie them together, especially after we look at these songs of degrees tonight. Well, last week we looked at an overview and looked at the structure of the Psalms as a whole. Tonight I want to do a little bit of introduction after we read and pray. I want to do a little introduction of these songs of degrees, and then we'll get into the preaching tonight. The Bible says in Psalm 120, in verse 1, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and He heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? What shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty, with coals of juniper... Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesec, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Father, help us tonight as we come to begin an understanding of these 15 psalms. Specifically, as we come to the closing tonight and look at this particular psalm. Help us to understand the kind of tongue we ought to have. And certainly the kind of tongue that we ought to avoid. Bless all that is said and done in this place this evening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three general ideas that scholars have as to when and what these songs, and degrees of, songs of degrees relate to. I'm going to give you each of the perspectives because as a pastor... I can't even give you a definitive, this is what they were used for. It is strongly believed that these songs of degrees, 120 to 134, were part of the corporate worship as they would go up year after year to the temple or to the tabernacle before that. It is strongly believed as well that these Psalms, 120 through Psalm 134, would have been used... Uh, or will be used in the book of Ezekiel when it talks about the temple that is in heaven. That temple has a, a 15 steps, seven on the outside, eight on the inside, that lead up to where the presence of God is. And so there's a lot of sense and connection that we can say that these songs are a song of ascent or rising action. That's what it means of degrees. From a lower standpoint to a rising action, To a concluding standpoint, even Spurgeon, the great preacher of old, said this about these particular series of psalms. He says, This little psalter within the psalter consists of 15 brief songs. The conjectures to their meaning are very many, but they are mere suppositions. Those who delight to spiritualize everything find here a sense of the soul or language fitted to describe the rising of the heart from the deepest grief to the highest delight. Spurgeon would later go on to say in his commentary on David's Psalms, he says this, I have thought it well to indicate the methods by which learned men have tried to explain the term songs of degrees. But the reader, he concludes must select his own interpretation. You say, now, wait a second, pastor, are you telling me there's a lot of different ways we can interpret these psalms? No, there's really only one way you can interpret each psalm, but what their meaning and their purpose was within the Israelite tribes and within the nation of Israel, we can't say definitively. The first understanding of the 15 songs of degrees comes to us by John Jeb. Now, It's going to be funny tonight, and I found it very humorous over the last three weeks as I was finalizing my thoughts for this message and many of the others in these 15 psalms. Everybody that's got an opinion is named John. So the only thing we can be sure of is there are a lot of Johns who study the Bible, okay? So I want you to note when I say all of their names, yes, they all start with the name John. John Jeb, who Spurgeon leaned heavily upon, had this commentary or this belief on the psalms, and I'll give it to you and leave it with you. He says this, in the 13th chapter of the first book of Chronicles, it is related that David brought up the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to the house of Obed-Eden. The word used in the seventh verse for bring up the ark is of the same etymology or the same history of the word and its use with and cognate to that which translates degrees. And upon this occasion, the great event was celebrated by the accompaniment of sacred music. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets, the Bible says. Jeb goes on to note, again in the 15th chapter of the same book, in the 14th 14th verse, the same term is employed for bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. And the choral services of the Levites are mentioned to immediate connection. He says in the fifth chapter of the second book of Chronicles, we are told that Solomon assembled the people at the dedication of the temple to bring up the ark from Sion to the temple of the Lord. And so he makes the connection that those words degrees are the correlation to these words degrees. I will only note this in slight disagreement or perspective. And as a pastor, my job in teaching, which we do on Sunday nights, is to give you perspective on understanding the Bible. That is this, five of these Psalms are assigned to David and one of them to Solomon. The rest are assigned to no man. In other words, they're just labeled songs of degrees. That's it. And so we're left to believe that all of them may have been written by David, but he didn't put his name on them, or only the ones that are assigned to David were what he used in the ascension up to Jerusalem. Jeb's reason and the construction of the Psalms is certainly a solid held view. And what of these psalms are intended to do? What they're supposed to do for us. It seems, however, that some pieces of these psalms in their totality do align with David and his surroundings, but others do not. So we come to a second scholarly opinion on these psalms from John Calvin. And it concerns the musical ascension. I mean, after all, the psalms are about music, right? This is the one that I think is the most fascinating But again, I'm going to tell you at the outset, it's not the one that I personally hold to. Here's what John Calvin said. He said this, and I love this first part, this being a matter of small moment, what that means is of small importance. He says, I'm not disposed to make it the subject of elaborate investigation as to what these songs of degrees were for. But the probable conjecture is that this title was given to these Psalms because they were sung on a higher key than the others. In other words, it was just a musical notation. Hey, by the way, instead of being in the bass baritone range, you're in the tenor alto range or in the high soprano falsetto range. He goes on to say the Hebrew word for degrees being derived from the word sala to ascend or go up. He goes on; He completes his thought by saying, I agree with those who are of the opinion that it denotes the different musical notes rising one upon the other. Now, that's an interesting thought. How many know music in here this evening? Raise your hand real high. How many of you know music and you're not in the choir at church? Keep your hands up. I'm kidding. It was a free shot to see who could join the choir. What is a musical octave? Go ahead and yell it out. It's Sunday night. What is a musical octave? How many notes? Eight. Octave. And so if we were to take these psalms within the concept of what Calvin was suggesting then we would say that Psalms 1 through 8 lead us to one certain point. And then there's a new octave, and the new octave goes from what? 8 through 15. And the new octave would begin at 15 and move on, but there isn't anything beyond 15. And here's a wonderful, wonderful truth if you want to look at the Word of God. These Psalms, as they build and ascend... The first eight might be looking at life in the Old Testament. The second eight might be looking at life in the New Testament, leaving us at 15 where this age ends and the eternal state begins. That would be wonderful if it's true. The problem is we don't know if it's true. If we were to say this simply, what Calvin believes or suggests is that these Psalms would be be moving up the octaves There's some good truth in this. Somewhere, some of you might be humming Julie Andrews. Do, re, mi. La, ti, do. Do, re, mi. Back down we go. And there's a deer somewhere in there. Psalm 134, if you were to turn and read it, is certainly a glorious psalm. If it is the end of the second octave and the end of the second work of God, so that we are moving into an eternal state, or at least into a millennial kingdom, a perfected state for us, we can understand what we're singing about and the joy that's in it. Now, while both of these two views of the songs of degrees are interesting, and possibly God's intention, the best explanation that I have ever heard concerning these 15 psalms comes from John Phillips in his commentary. John Phillips in his commentary builds what he believes from John Lightfoot, a 1600s preacher. Like other Bible students, I am not claiming emphatically that this is the only and accurate view of these songs of degrees. But I wanted to read to you verbatim what Phillips says in his commentary on these because I think it's valuable for us within context. This, to my mind, is the most plausible explanation for these psalms. Here's what Philip says. He said, the Hebrew text uses the definite, uh, de- definite article in this expression. It's not just a song of degrees, but the song of degrees. Naturally, he writes, that leads us to this question. What degrees? Only one set of degrees is mentioned in the Bible. Those related to the sundial of Ahaz. When King Hezekiah was deathly ill, his importunate prayer was answered, and he was given a 15 year extension to his life. He was also given a sign by the prophet Isaiah as proof that he was going to recover. The shadow on the sundial of Ahaz went back how many degrees? 10 degrees backwards. So if there's five psalms that are assigned and ten of them that are not assigned in these, then it seems to me that what Hezekiah has done, and I'm freelancing here. I'll go back to reading in just a second. Hezekiah has compiled the other ten psalms or written, composed them along with Isaiah and then brought in the other psalms of David and Solomon where they were appropriate and where they fit. Phillips goes on to say this. He said the Holy Spirit evidently wants to draw our attention to the degrees on the sundial because they are mentioned six times in Second Kings chapter 20 and five times in Isaiah 38 and verse 8. On recovering from his sickness, the king said, The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord in Isaiah 38 and verse 20. These 15 songs of degrees correspond to the number of years added to Hezekiah's life. He himself wrote 10 of them corresponding to the shadow going backwards on the sundial. The other five were selected from extant or existing hymns of David and Solomon and added to the collection. Of these five, David wrote four in Solomon 1. The psalm by Solomon, Psalm 127, is set in the center of the 15 psalms. And with two of David's psalms coming in the group of seven before and two coming in the group after. 122, 124, 131, and 133. Now, I'm not expecting you to remember all these. I'm just noting these. Phillips goes on, I should say, not to the conclusion of his thought yet. He says, the 10 psalms by Hezekiah are given no title. There would be no need for Hezekiah to append his name to them because he has already called them my songs. The life of this remarkable king is of great interest, Phillips writes. The story of his sickness and of his Assyrian invasion, the true great events of his life, is recorded in three books of the Bible, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and in Isaiah. A study of the incident's Recorded by the Holy Spirit reveals many points of comparison between Hezekiah's experience and the theme of each of these songs. These psalms may have been sung by the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. They may have been sung by the returning captives, especially when the hills of Jeruda, uh, Judah excuse me, burst into their sight when they came back from exile. They may record the experiences of the dispersed of Israel in coming the coming great deliverance from the power of the beast in the future... But first and foremost, Phillips concludes, they are linked with Hezekiah. I'm going to try to prove that when we preach through it this evening, but more importantly, I'm going to try to preach the psalm. I only note Lightfoot because he enhances what Phillips wrote. John Lightfoot lived from 1602 to 1675, and he wrote this, Hezekiah liveth. These 15 years in safety and prosperity, having humbled himself before the Lord for his pride to the ambassadors of Babel, the degrees of the sun's reversing, and the 15 years of Hezekiah's life prolonging, may call to your minds these 15 Psalms of degrees. These were Hezekiah's songs that were sung to the stringed instruments in the house of the Lord in Isaiah 38 and verse 20 whether these were picked out by him for that purpose, may be left to your conjecture. And I thought that's the best way probably to put it. You say, what's the point, pastor? You read me a lot of quotes from a lot of guys. There's a lot of smart people that don't know what and why the songs of degrees are there, but God does. And in revealing to us these songs of degrees, we can draw great strength in them because we draw nearer to God through them. Whether these songs are pertaining to Hezekiah's extended life, songs sung along the 15 steps of the temple in Ezekiel's future day, songs sung by David as he ascended with the ark, or if they were compiled by Solomon during the glorious and victorious initiation of the temple, it doesn't matter because each of the psalms is still valuable. There is certain structure as well to these 15 psalms that help us day by day. These psalms do depict a group of people drawing nearer to God. If you read these 15 psalms carefully, you will detect that the 15 psalms can be found in five groups of threes. We might call them five groups of triads. In each of the triads, so 120, 121, and 122 would be a triad. In each triad, the first psalm records trouble. The second psalm records trust. The third records triumph. By the way, isn't that how most of our lives are lived for the Lord Jesus Christ? Trouble, trust, triumph. And if you read each of the Psalms, the grouping of one, two, three, next one, one, two, three, there's five of them. It is is as if the one compiling these Psalms knew what it was like to live a life walking with God. That is to our Christian life. Trouble, trust, triumph. So now we finally get to 120 and you said, man, it's 535, I hope you're going to go quick. It's not a long psalm. We'll be able to make it through in pretty good order tonight. The The trouble in the first triad of the Songs of Degrees seems to be, as we read tonight, the tongue. The tongue is an awful weapon, is it not? Equally so... It is an awesome, I'm not there yet to the desperate tongue, Kara, I promise. I'll get back there in just a second. It is also an amazing wonder to us. James chapter 3 has much to say about the tongue, but I'm going to contain myself tonight to just this psalm and the linkage to Hezekiah's life. I think there's great connection in it. Psalm 20, 120, excuse me, opens with, as Kara just put up, the desperate tongue. You all had a premonition that that was what it was going to be, right? You knew. How many times in your life, how many times in the trouble of your life, whatever that trouble may be, have you had a desperate tongue crying out to God? And the answer is, we've all been there. In various depths of trouble and trial, all of us have been to the point of a desperate tongue. We can't do anything else with our hands. We can't go anywhere else with our feet. And the only thing we can do with our desperate tongue is twofold, according to this psalm. First, we cry out to God. The desperate tongue is seen here, and that is, you are in trouble, and the only solution is, God help me. God save me. The first verse, he says, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord. Hallelujah, the last of that verse says, and he heard me. If this is Hezekiah, then Assyria has conquered everything in its path. And the only thing that now lay in front of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and Rabashekah, his chief of the captains, is little old Judah with their capital city, Jerusalem. Israel, the ten tribes of the north, their neighbors and brothers had been taken into captivity and Sennacherib has sent Rabshakeh to threaten Jerusalem with surrender. In 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse verse 28, the Bible says this, then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews language and spake saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present. Come out to me. And then each every man his own vine. By the way, if you pause for a second in this story, how many know the story of the captivity of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day? They were literally eating anything and everything they could find. They were living within the walls of Jerusalem in squalor. There was nothing to be had because they were doomed. And here Rabshakeh is standing outside the gates and he's mocking the king. He's saying the king himself is a liar. He goes on and says, And every one is fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away to the land like your own land, a land of corn and wine. Here this man is telling them a lie. He's feeding them a lie to lure them out of their city. And we find this man is what's causing the desperation for Hezekiah. He tells them that Assyria is a land of olive oil and of honey that you may live and not die and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you saying, the Lord will deliver us. And by the way, I do voices when I read the Bible because this is exactly what he's saying outside. If you go back and read the amb- ambassadors that came out from King Hezekiah said, hey man, don't talk in the Jewish tongue. We can understand the Assyrian language. We don't want the people on the wall to be scared. And rabsheka said, no, we're talking in the Jewish tongue because we want those people on the wall to believe us and not you. I think I would cry out for help too in this situation. He goes on and says, The Lord, uh, don't let him persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Here's the great quote, and it's seemingly a blasphemous quote, but it's a great quote in the sense of seeing the kind of person this man Rabshakeh was. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Nobody stood up to us. Where are the gods of Hamath? And of Arpad, where are the gods of Seraphim and Hina and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. In this passage, King Hezekiah will go on to cry out to God for rescue from the Assyrians. This psalm, I believe, is describing that distress. And may I suggest to you, sometimes in life, it feels like the biggest army in the world is set against you and your success. You need to cry out to God. As soon as as Assyria is dealt with, He finds out that he's going to die, Hezekiah. Got rid of the Assyrians, if you know the story. He did. God did. Isaiah is going to give him a message that we'll see in just a moment. Man, I'm glad that's over. Oh, by the way, now you're sick unto death. What? I just got out of one trouble, and I went right into another trouble. I understand the distress that he's crying out to God in here. One terror after another, yet God is there for us to cry out to. Hezekiah cries out, the psalmist, we might say, cries out to the only one who can truly help his condition. Friend, when you are desperate, you can always cry out to God. He cries out, the psalmist, but let her be, he also calls upon. Notice verse 2. There's a difference between crying out. When you cry out, you don't know what you need for help. You just know that you need help. In verse 2, it comes into focus exactly what he needs. Here's what he says in verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. To call upon means to call for action. He doesn't just cry for help, but rather he calls for specific help from a specific person. Whatever that help may be, we don't fully know. But we know that God will help if we request The psalmist here wants God to deliver his soul from those who are lying about him. Rabshakeh was certainly lying about Hezekiah if it's him. David had plenty of people lying about him if it's David that's writing it. Solomon likely had enemies as well if it's Solomon that is writing it. Rabshakeh, if it's Hezekiah, was standing right outside the walls slandering Hezekiah and the God of Israel. Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 37, speaking of this same situation and scenario, beginning in verse 1, and it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the house, over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble. Matches this psalm perfectly. And of rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to birth, and there's no strength to bring forth. In other words, they're with child, but they don't have any ability to deliver that child. It may be the Lord. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria his master hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, here's what Hezekiah is asking the prophet Isaiah, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. We're in trouble. But he knows exactly who to go to, and he knows exactly what he wants God to do. This psalm will help us to understand that no matter how formidable our enemy, no matter how dire our personal straits are, no matter what lies The world, the devil, and even our flesh will tell to us, we can always cry out and we can always call upon God to deliver us. That is the desperate tongue of verses 1 and 2. The desperate tongue is so because of the next two tongues that we find in this psalm. The next two types of tongues that we find begin first with the deceitful tongue, or second in our notes. The deceitful tongue. In verses 2, at the end of verse 2 and all of 3, we find that there is a tongue that is speaking lies. It is deceitful in its nature. Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 6 and verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. Seven make him sick. Seven turn his stomach. What are those seven things that make God sick? Two of them are telling lies. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. By the way, so far of those that are listed, they are perfectly our present day America. Ever wonder why we're in trouble? Always go back to the Bible and you can find out why we're in trouble. He finishes by saying, a false witness that speaketh lies, there's a second time that is mentioned, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Two of the seven things that make God sick have to do with a deceitful tongue and the psalmist here talks about the deceitfulness of the tongue that he was enduring at that time. The deceitful tongue, letter A, lies freely. There's nothing that stops it from lying. It just does it as a force of habit, like it's second nature. Jesus tells us in John 8 and verse 44 that Satan is the father of lies. This tells us that, lo- that the lying tongue is the end of waywardness from God. Truth Tellers bear the image of God. Thus we are who we who are Christ should always be about telling the truth. In our world today, many voices cry out just like Rabshekah. They promise all the good things in life are yours if you'll just join us. That's exactly the lie that Rabshekah told those in Jerusalem. If you will leave the protection of God's word, if you will leave the protection of God's sovereignty, if you will leave God's side and join ours, they promise to care for us. They promise to do good things for us. They promise if we will but leave God's provision, they will be everything to us. That's exactly what Rabshakeh offered. Truth is, Rabshakeh had no idea what would happen to a random Jew inside of Jerusalem who surrendered to him at that moment. The fact is, he didn't care what happened to them. He was willing to tell them whatever it took for them to leave God's safety. And may I suggest tonight that many of our children listen to the world's lies in the very same way. And the sad part is, we don't even put up the walls of the city anymore. We invite all of that garbage right into our house. It's always heartbreaking to me when I meet someone who has believed the lie of the devil, believed the lies of the world, believed the lies of those who are haters and not followers of God, believed the lies of their own fleshly nature, and they come back and they'll say to me, or their parents will be with me and say, I didn't think it would go that far. Oh, listen, the Jews in Jerusalem listening to Rabshakeh could have believed his deceitful tongue. He lied freely. A lying tongue has no Compunction to stop. There's no reason for them to stop. Those who hate our soul and want to harm us will lie freely, but their deceitful tongue also, let her be, lacks foundation in verse 3. What shall be given unto thee? Or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? He's asking two rhetorical questions. When's enough enough? How much do you want in your lie? You know, the problem with liars is they just keep lying. The problem with a deceitful tongue is it weaves such a web, it cannot figure out where the lie actually began. And many a liar actually begins to believe their own lie. Rabshakeh did. You could read the whole story. We'll read in one more snippet later. But you could read the whole story of Rabshakeh's uh, besiegement of Jerusalem and how he was Absolutely sure these little people and this little God was not going to do anything to him. And Isaiah's prophecy against him essentially in Isaiah 38 is, you're going to go back home and die. Well, how could God say that? Because he's God. It doesn't matter how little his remnant of people is. He's still God. The rhetorical question of the psalmist here is, when will that deceitful lying tongue get enough? The answer is, is never. They always lie because there is no reason for them to not. This is our present age, the world that we live in. We live in an age of exaggeration, of exaltation, of the absence of honesty. Oh, I tell you, the thing I fight with my three boys, and I, I never preach or tell the things that my family might or might not struggle with, but every parent struggles with this. I fight exaggerations. In our house, well, I've done it a million times. Really, a million. And there's some other parents in here smiling along with me. They know that pain. My mother, chief among them, is smiling back there. The idea of exaggeration today seems to be swept under the rug. Well, I mean, it's just exaggeration. We'll never turn this country around. Well, that's a lie. Well, I believe that lie. Well, don't believe that lie. God can do that in an instant. The problem is we've stopped believing that God can actually work providentially. We just begin to believe the lie because our news channel told us that. And the opposition news channel told their people the same thing in the opposite form. Why don't we just believe God? The lying tongue lacks foundation. People today don't care what truth is because they will just bend the rules, bend the norms, change the expectations to make their lie sound true. One of the lies we hear today is a man can be a woman. It's a lie. I mean, he can act like one, but he isn't one. Another lie that we're told today is there's no consequences for your choices. There's consequences for every choice, good choices and bad choices. We have a world that lives in lying lips, just like Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh lied without caring about the truth. He didn't even think about it. His view of the world is all that mattered to him, so far as he was winning in it. Truth about who this God of the Israelites was didn't need to ground him. His own truth grounded him, and his truth was all that mattered. The desperate tongue cries out for the deceitful tongue to be stopped. The deceitful tongue lies freely because it lacks foundation. Finally, in this psalm, we find the destructive tongue. I must hasten. We have less than five minutes. The lying tongue produces a destructive tongue. If someone will easily and openly lie, then they will use their tongue in every possible way to advance themselves and to destroy destroy God and or His people. The psalmist's desperate cry to God is that the destructive tongue, letter A, would be Corrected. In verse four, he says, sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. It took me a long time to figure out what the coals of juniper is. Does anybody know the coals of juniper? So a juniper is what they call a broom plant in the desert. It grows only to five or six feet, gives shade in a wasteland area like Israel would have been or without a a lot of large, tall trees that grew. But that Tree, that broom plant, that juniper, could be cut down, and when it was burned, it was the hottest, longest burning firewood that you could find. It was so good as burning firewood that literally you could smelt things with it, as if you were uni- using coals. They would ember and stay, and they would produce heat for hours and hours, massive amounts of heat. And so what he's saying here in verse 4 is, sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. The sharp arrow of the mighty is that the mighty would, would be shooting at him. He, here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 37 in verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, Wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, speaking on behalf of God, behold, I will send a blast upon him. Man, that sounds a lot like the coals of a juniper. You could see them taking that, uh, that, uh, what do they call it, a fan or where they would squeeze it together. Yes, a bellow, that's what it is. Squeeze it together, blow the heat in, and the fire would get even hotter. He says, I'm going to blast upon them. And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. That's what's going to happen to this destructive, deceitful tongue. So we find two things that you can write there in your notes. Number one, the correction that comes is first by the mighty. Until God decides to deal with the destructive tongues of this world, all we can do is wait in our present state. Well, I will tell you what... I've got the perfect argument that will shut them down and shut them up. No, it won't. Hezekiah and Isaiah had the perfect argument that would shut them down and shut them up. And it didn't until it did. They had to wait on God. And he trusted that the one who had the mighty arrows. It also speaks here of Isaiah's statement back. There was a mighty arrow of truth. By the way, it was God's truth that he shot at him. Good idea not to shoot your opinions at people, but to shoot God's arrows of truth at people that are hateful and destructive. But number two, it's in our misery. Verse five, woe is me. You know, in the prophets, when a woe is declared, it's a bad thing. And what he says is, I wish I wasn't in this condition. You're allowed to complain to God so long as you do it biblically. You can't question God's sovereignty, power, and authority, but you can question why events are unfolding as you are. He says, woe is me. And the two names he give, gives, Misek and Kedar, if we were to take them in their time, Misek would be Moscow. It would be the Misek people, sons of Javeth, or Japheth, excuse me, in the Genesis chapter 10 lineage. They would be people who were ruthless. By the way, the Russians have always been ruthless. Nothing new under the sun. Right. If we look in prophecy, it looks ahead. If this is a song of degrees written for Ezekiel, it's looking ahead and it's telling us that there's a day that the ruthless people will be settled in and around Jerusalem. Well, that day's coming. That day's coming at the Battle of Armageddon. It'll be here soon enough. The other group is called Kedar. You know what the group called Kedar was? They were the, what we would call today the Arab League. It was all the nomadic tribes that would live in Saudi Arabia, North Africa, over in Tehran and Persia. They would travel like the Houthis in that area. Oh, we've heard about the Houthis today. They would be part of Kedar. The Kedars were known in the ancient world to the Greeks and to the Romans, to the Israelites as well. They were known as vandals and vagrants who would just come and steal stuff that wasn't theirs. So he says, woe is me and my misery. I'm living in a group of ruthless people who are trying to steal everything I have. That's our state. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we live in a fallen world. We can understand that woe well, very clearly. But let her be, and finally this evening... <clears throat> While the destructive tongue will be corrected, the destructive tongue is challenging, according to verses 6 and 7. I don't want you to leave and I go, well, it's all just sunshine and roses. We'll be okay. We will be okay. But it's challenging. It tries your patience. It really tests your trust in God. By the way, that's why the next psalm is so great. It's a psalm of trust, following a psalm of trouble. What does it challenge? Two things you can write in your notes. First, it challenges our peace. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace. It challenges our state of being in Christ as new creatures created in Christ Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. It challenges our peace, but the end of verse 7, it also challenges our very person. He said, the psalmist says, and we've all been here. When I speak, in other words, whatever I say, they're against it. What does it say? Look at it with me. When I speak, they are for war. They just want contention. They just want to fight. Can I tell you a secret? They hate God, so they hate the God that is living in you. We should not be frustrated or become flustered in our living, all in a tizzy, because there are people that don't know Christ and don't like us. That's why Jesus said that we're to love our enemy. We're to do good to them that persecute us and despitefully use us. Because Jesus knows that these people are always going to be in our life. That's what this psalm tells us. Nothing we can say makes them happy. So the reality is, don't try. Tell them the truth. Say what is true and let God take care of the rest. That's what Hezekiah did. Oh, it meant that they were ready to tear down the bars of the door and burst into his city. But he knew that God was in control and if God allowed that to happen, it was God's will. But Hezekiah was going to speak the truth. I mean, he was scared as a cat, but he was going to speak the truth. What a way to start our ascent towards God. We begin down in the pit with a bunch of liars. It can only go up from here. Right, you would hope. Next week we'll look in chapter one, or in Psalm one twenty-one, I should say, at the trust that comes in the midst of that trouble. Father, help us, I pray, as we take this psalm.